China is in the news a lot at the moment because of the coronavirus, and we are praying that that can be contained and eradicated soon. But last century, something else spread in China that didn't make the news. In 1949, Christian missionaries had been in China for over 100 years at that point, and they had seen some progress in their work. There were, at that time, about one million Christians in China. But in 1949, all the missionaries had to leave. They were ejected by the new regime under Chairman Mao. So the question for Christians was, what was going to become of the church in China? Well, years later, we find out the answer. Whenever missionaries were allowed back several decades later, they find that the church had blossomed in their absence. It had grown massively. Today, there are tens of millions of Christians in China. No one has exact numbers. The Chinese government acknowledges 31 million, but the actual number could be closer to 100 million. How did that happen? It happened because although the missionaries had to leave, God's word did not leave. Bibles were still available, and the Bible accomplished what those banished missionaries were not able to accomplish. That's just one example of how God's written word has shown itself to be powerful and effective. And this morning, we're going to take a close look at the power and effectiveness of God's written word. In the book of Jeremiah, probably the two most common phrases are, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, and this is what the Lord says. Those phrases, or some variation of those phrases, occurs over and over in each chapter of this book, never mind the book as a whole. And in our passage this morning, we see the word of the Lord taking on a life of its own. We see it going where Jeremiah himself cannot go and reaching people Jeremiah cannot reach. So turn to Jeremiah chapter 36. It's page 799 in the church Bibles or 1238 in the larger print Bibles. Just to remind you where we are in history at this point in the book, the book has taken us right up to the point where Jerusalem is facing a third attack from the Babylonians. Zedekiah is king of Judah at this time, and Jerusalem is under siege. And we know already what the outcome of that is going to be. The Babylonians will overcome Jerusalem, and they will take King Zedekiah away into exile. But before the book gives us details of that actually happening, we have a pause, and the book leaves the time of Zedekiah and the siege of Jerusalem to tell us about two incidents that happened a few years earlier during the reign of Jehoiakim. We're given two flashbacks that help us understand why the city finally fell. We looked at the first of those flashbacks last week. Jeremiah used the faithfulness of a little group called the Rechabites 
to show the people of Judah and Jerusalem their miserable unfaithfulness. Through Jeremiah, God said, the descendants of Jehonadab, son of Rechab, have carried out the command their forefather gave them, but these people of Judah have not obeyed me. How outrageous is it, God was saying, that the Rechabites revered and obeyed the word of their ancestor Jehonadab, but the people of Judah refused to revere and obey the infinitely more significant word of God. That was the challenge of chapter 35. And it leads into another flashback in chapter 36, which focuses on the significance of God's word. So if you have chapter 36 open in your Bible, we'll read that whole chapter. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah till now. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, they will each turn from their wicked ways. Then I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. So Jeremiah called Baruch son of Neriah, and while Jeremiah dictated all the words the Lord had spoken to him, Baruch wrote them on the scroll. Then Jeremiah told Baruch, I am restricted. I am not allowed to go to the Lord's temple. So you go to the house of the Lord on a day of fasting and read to the people from the scroll the words of the Lord that you wrote as I dictated. Read them to all the people of Judah who come in from their towns. Perhaps they will bring their petition before the Lord and will each turn from their wicked ways. For the anger and wrath pronounced against this people by the Lord are great. Baruch, son of Neriah, did everything Jeremiah the prophet told him to do. At the Lord's temple, he read the words of the Lord from the scroll. In the ninth month of the fifth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, a time of fasting before the Lord was proclaimed for all the people in Jerusalem and those who had come from the towns of Judah. From the room of Gemariah, son of Shaphan the secretary, which was in the upper courtyard at the entrance of the new gate of the temple, Baruch read to all the people at the Lord's temple the words of Jeremiah from the scroll. When Micaiah, son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll, he went down to the secretary's room in the royal palace, where all the officials were sitting. Elishama, the secretary, Deliah, son of Shemaiah, Elnathan, son of Akbor, Gamariah, son of Shaphan, Zedekiah, son of Hananiah, and all the other officials. After Micaiah told them everything he had heard, Baruch read to the people from the scroll. All the officials sent Jehudi, son of Nethaniah, the son of Shalamiah, the son of Cushi, to say to Baruch, bring the scroll from which you have read to the people and come. So Baruch, son of Neriah, went to them with the scroll in his hand. They said to him, sit down, please, and read it to us. So Baruch read it to them. When they heard all these words, they looked at each other in fear and said to Baruch, we must report all these words to the king. Then they asked Baruch, tell us, how did you come to write all this? Did Jeremiah dictate it? 
Yes, Baruch replied. He dictated all these words to me, and I wrote them in ink on the scroll. Then the official said to Baruch, you and Jeremiah, go and hide. Don't let anyone know where you are. After they put the scroll in the room of Elishama, the secretary, they went to the king in the courtyard and reported everything to him. The king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and Jehudi brought it from the room of Elishama, the secretary, and read it to the king and all the officials standing beside him. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the brazier in front of him. Whenever Jehudi had read three or four columns of the scroll, the king cut them off with a scribe's knife and threw them into the brazier until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. The king and all his attendants who heard all these words showed no fear, nor did they tear their clothes. Even though Elnathan, Deliah, and Gemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. Instead, the king commanded Jeremiel, a son of the king, Sariah, son of Azrael, and Shalemiah, son of Abdeel, to arrest Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet. But the Lord had hidden them. After the king burned the scroll containing the words that Baruch had written at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll and write on it all the words that were on the first scroll which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, burned up. Also, tell Jehoiakim, king of Judah, this is what the Lord says. You burned the scroll and said, why did you write on it that the king of Babylon would certainly come and destroy this land and wipe from it both man and beast? Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He will have no one to sit on the throne of David. His body will be thrown out and exposed to the heat by day and the frost by night. I will punish him and his children and his descendants for their wickedness. I will bring on them and those living in Jerusalem and the people of Judah every disaster I pronounced against them, because they have not listened. So Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to the scribe Baruch, son of Neriah. And as Jeremiah dictated, Baruch wrote on it all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. This is God's word. This passage is about what the New Testament calls the living and enduring word of God. Verse 1 tells us this took place in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. So we've gone back several years before the final siege of Jerusalem. And God says to Jeremiah in verse 2, Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah till now. At this point, when this word comes to Jeremiah, he has been preaching already for 23 years. And the message Jeremiah has been preaching is found in chapters 1 to 18 of our book of Jeremiah. When we looked at those chapters, we saw a message of warning. Jeremiah was confronting the people with their sin. He was pleading with them. 
to repent before it was too late. In chapter 19, things took a very definite turn when Jeremiah preached his clay jar sermon. He announced that God's patience had finally run out. Judgment would come, the city would fall. And Jeremiah signaled that by taking the clay jar he was holding as he preached and smashing it on the ground in front of everyone. That was the climax of the sermon. It was a symbol of what was going to happen to Jerusalem because they would not repent. But our passage this morning seems to be set before that clay jar sermon. Jeremiah's message is still that time hasn't run out yet. And God says to him, take that message of warning you've been preaching for the last 23 years and write it down on a scroll. And then God gives the reason for writing down the message in verse 3. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, they will each turn from their wicked ways. Then I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. So God's word is not being written down just for the sake of preserving it. This is not just so historians can marvel at a piece of ancient writing. God's word is being written so people will turn from their wicked ways and be forgiven. And that is always the purpose of God's written word. None of it was written for our idle curiosity. It wasn't written just to preserve ancient traditions. It wasn't written to give museum curators something to do with their time. Listen to how the Apostle John in the New Testament explains his reason for writing God's word. This is near the end of John's gospel. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Or here's the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy. The Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So the consistent message of the Old and New Testament scriptures is that they were written for our salvation. To turn us from death to life. From disobedience and slavery to obedience and freedom. God's written word is a merciful gift from God. So every time you and I come to the Bible, let's come to it as a life-giving word. Not just a book about strange people in strange situations. Those people and those situations are recorded for us, the New Testament says, to save us from God's judgment and lead us deeper into his love and blessing. The scroll Jeremiah is told to write here has that exact same purpose. But we might wonder, well, why not just tell Jeremiah to go on preaching? Doesn't that get the word across to people? What's so significant about writing it down? Well, we find the answer to that in verses 4 to 21. God's written word is uncontainable. 
First in these verses, we're told about the process in verse 4. So Jeremiah called Baruch, son of Neriah, and while Jeremiah dictated all the words the Lord had spoken to him, Baruch wrote them on the scroll. I don't think we're supposed to imagine Jeremiah trying to remember 23 years of messages from God. It's almost certain Jeremiah had already been writing his messages down as they were revealed to him. We know the prophet Isaiah did that. There's no reason to think Jeremiah was any different. But what Jeremiah is doing here is bringing all those notes together, organizing those sermons, putting them into an order. Up to this point, they've been adequate for his own preaching in the streets. But now they need to be made ready for others to read. And to help him organize his material, Jeremiah brings on board a professional scribe, Baruch, son of Neriah. We've already heard about Baruch in chapter 32. He helped Jeremiah with the legal documents for buying a field. As a professional, Baruch had his own professional seal for signing documents, leaving his mark on documents. And in the Israel Museum today, you can see several clay tablets that have been marked by his personal seal. They have a little mark which reads, Baruch, son of Neriah, leaving his mark on his work. In fact, archaeologists have also found seals from three other characters mentioned in this chapter. And it's interesting, those little mementos have been found It helps to confirm the historical accuracy of what we're reading about here. But we could say those clay seals were accidentally preserved. Archaeologists just happened to stumble on them as they dug. But the work Baruch is doing here is very different. God is not going to leave it to chance whether his messages through Jeremiah are preserved. And so Jeremiah organizes his notes, he dictates them, and Baruch writes them on the scroll. Scrolls were made of either leather or parchment or papyrus. There were bits stitched together end to end, and they could be up to 30 feet long, so about nine meters. Now, as we'll see, this scroll was probably considerably shorter than that because it gets read three times in one day. It's unlikely it contained all of our chapters 1 to 18. But it's a collection of sermons that gets the message across. And when it's finished, we discover the point in having God's word written down. If you look at verse 5. Then Jeremiah told Baruch, I am restricted. I'm not allowed to go to the Lord's temple. So you go to the house of the Lord on a day of fasting and read to the people from the school the words of the Lord that you wrote as I dictated. Read to them, read to all the people of Judah who come in from their towns. Jeremiah's preaching is important, but what happens when Jeremiah can't preach anymore? The answer is he can go on preaching as his words are read to the people. In fact, it's more accurate to say when God's prophets are silenced, God's word can go on being heard as it's read aloud. You may have noticed this passage 
alternates back and forth all the way through between calling the words on the scroll, the words of Jeremiah, and then also calling them the words of the Lord. They are, in fact, the Lord's words spoken by Jeremiah and now written on the scroll. We don't know exactly why Jeremiah is restricted at this point in time. It's likely he's not allowed at the temple because the temple authorities and the king don't like his message. But his message can still be heard because Baruch is not banned from the temple, not yet anyway. And now that God's word is written down, it can still be heard. One commentator has suggested that we think of someone catching butterflies in a net. If you picture that in your head. Writing down God's word is a bit like that. The words Jeremiah has been preaching are caught like butterflies and attached to the scroll. And then as Baruch reads the scroll aloud, the words are released again like butterflies, to reach people's ears and reach their hearts. Even though Jeremiah himself has been shut out of the whole occasion. That's what happened in the temple courts. And that is what happens today as the Bible is read. One writer says this, the voice we hear when the Bible is read is not the voice doing the reading, It is the voice of the prophet who first spoke. And it is the voice of God whose words the prophet spoke. God's word that has been caught as the words are written down is released as the words are read. And that's why when we listen to the Bible being read, we really can say, this is God's word. I have just heard God speak. His word may have been written down long, long ago, but as it's read, it comes freshly to us. It's not an ancient steel word, it's a timeless living word. It is God actually speaking to us in our time and place. As the word is released. What all that means is that God's written word is an uncontainable word. We can see that here. As Baruch goes to the temple, we're told it's a day of fasting. And that is significant, not because the people have had a change of heart. They haven't. This is just a ritual to them. We learned earlier in the book, all through their years of idolatry and disobedience, they've kept up the ceremonies at the temple, the sacrifices and the festivals. They thought that would keep them safe from God's judgment, even though their hearts were devoted to sin. So the significance of it being a day of fasting is not that the people are finally getting serious. The significance is the place is rammed. Verse 9 says people have come in from the towns of Judah. So the temple courts would have been heaving with people. And verse 10 explains Baruch was able to use a room on an upper level of the temple. Maybe this is not the best illustration because I don't want to compare Baruch to the Pope. But if you picture the scene here, you might think of the Pope addressing the crowds in St. Peter's Square from the window of his office. 
That's what he does every Sunday. His office overlooks that massive square that is usually thronged with people. And in a similar way here at the temple, Baruch is able to read the scroll to all the people from an upper room, a window up there belonging to uh, Gemariah, son of Shaphan. Jeremiah's absence has not hindered God's word one bit. And that's only the start of it. Because the next verses tell us one of those in the crowd is a man called Micaiah. When he hears God's word being read, he runs to the palace and he tells the officials what he's heard. And look what they do in verse 13. After Micaiah told them everything he had heard Baruch read to the people from the scroll, all the officials sent Jehudi, son of Nethaniah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Cushi, to say to Baruch, bring the scroll from which you have read to the people and come. So Baruch, son of Neriah, went to them with a scroll in his hand. They said to him, sit down, please, and read it to us. First, the cries at the temple heard the word, whether they wanted to or not. And now these officials actually invite Baruch to read it again to them. And when they hear it read, their response is in verse 16, we must report all these words to the king. But they know it's not safe for Baruch to go. So they tell him to hide and take Jeremiah with him. They obviously have some degree of sympathy with the prophet. They're not telling tales to the king. They know the king needs to hear this message. So now look what happens in verse 20. After they put the scroll in the room of Elishamah, the secretary, they went to the king in the courtyard and reported everything to him. The king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and Jehudi brought it from the room of Elishamah, the secretary, and read it to the king and all the officials standing beside him. Do you see how God's word has traveled in these verses? God's word, first spoken by Jeremiah, has been caught on the page of the scroll. Then it's been released as Baruch read it at the temple. Then it's been released again as he read it at the palace. And now God's word is released a third time after Baruch has gone into hiding. Jehudi reads it to the king in his private apartment. God's word is uncontainable. It is not dependent on Jeremiah being around. It's not even dependent on Baruch being around. The written word arrives at the king's apartment without either of them. And God speaks to the king through the voice of Jehudi as he reads the scroll. We don't even know for sure what Jehudi himself thought of the words. But whatever he thinks about his reading, what he's reading, it is the voice of God the king hears. Charles Spurgeon said he was converted by the worst sermon he ever heard. It's worth reading his description of that sermon if you, uh, if you care to do that. The preacher was dreadful and the sermon was muddled and confused, but at least the preacher read God's word. And God's word gripped Spurgeon 
He heard God's voice and he turned to God from his sin. Even a rubbish sermon couldn't silence the voice of God. I know some of you were converted as you read the Bible alone in your living room. Now, the lesson of that is not that it's okay to avoid church. The lesson is in emergencies, God's word can reach you and convict you even when you avoid church. His word is uncontainable. Throughout history, many countries have tried to ban it, but it never works. If his word was tied to a great preacher, then sure, you could ban it. Just don't give the preacher a visa. But you can't truly ban a written word. Even if you ban the actual book, it can be read aloud and broadcast. And you cannot perfectly jam the airwaves and the internet. This day in Jerusalem is replayed every day around the world. As the written word of God finds its way into all kinds of places by all kinds of means. And it doesn't stop there. Because the uncontainability of God's word is not just some cool party trick. God made his word uncontainable for a purpose. He made sure it would be heard because it produces a response. Always it produces a response. Maybe you hear that and think, no, it doesn't. I never respond to it. Don't kid yourself. Every time you walk away without answering God's call on your life, you are responding. You're rejecting his call. Hearing the Bible is different from hearing Shakespeare, for example, because Shakespeare does not demand a response. I could stand here and I could read aloud from Hamlet or Macbeth to you, and you might like it or you might not like it, But Shakespeare's words do not require anything from you. If you want, you can be completely passive about them. And it really doesn't matter. But God's word is different. Eric Auerbach puts it like this. The scriptures do not court our favor. They do not flatter us that they may please us and enchant us. They seek to subject us. And if we refuse to be subjected, we are rebels. Of course, you and I can ignore Scripture. But that is a response. It's a response of rebellion. Look again how King Jehoiakim responds as Jehudi reads the scroll. Verse 22. It was the ninth month and the king was sitting in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the brazier in front of him. Whenever Jehudi had read three or four columns of the scroll, the king cut them off with a scribe's knife and threw them into the brazier until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. 
The king and all his attendants who heard all these words showed no fear, nor did they tear their clothes. Even though Elnathan, Deliah, and Gemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. Instead, the king commanded Jeremiah, a son of the king, Sariah, son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, son of Abdeel, to arrest Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet. But the Lord had hidden them. The brazier is a kind of mobile fireplace. It's some kind of tray with hot coals on it. And we don't know what was going through the king's mind. Did he believe he could stop God's judgment from coming if he got rid of the word of judgment? Or is this a way of showing his utter contempt for God and his word? Whatever he's thinking exactly, Jehoiakim does respond here. God's word has called him to repent of his sin and be saved, and Jehoiakim rejects that call. And I'm sure verse 24 is making an intentional contrast with how his father responded when he heard God's word. His father was Josiah, who has been mentioned by name three times in this passage. That's why I'm sure there's a contrast being made here. During Josiah's reign, the book of the law was found. Another part of God's word, probably the book of Jeremiah of Deuteronomy. The book had been hidden away for years, but when it was found and read to Josiah, the writer of Kings tells us this. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. That was a sign of Deep mourning and great distress. Josiah was cut to the heart as he listened to God's word. And he responded with true repentance. He devoted the rest of his life to promoting and upholding God's word. He had it read to the people publicly and he sought to put it into practice. Tearing down and destroying the idol altars throughout Judah. That was Josiah's reaction. But now look again as verse 24 gives us Jehoiakim's reaction to God's word. The king and all his attendants who heard all these words showed no fear, nor did they tear their clothes. So here's the contrast between father and son. Josiah tears his garments as a sign of mourning. Jehoiakim tears the scroll. Josiah burns the pagan altars. Jehoiakim burns the scroll. Josiah listens to the word of the Lord while Jehoiakim does not. God's word always produces a response. And there are really only two responses. Humble submissiveness to God's word and whatever it asks of us. Or hard-hearted rejection of God's word. If you've been coming here for months or years and you've been rejecting God's word, beware. Because the more you do that, the easier it becomes to do it. Every time you walk away unhumbled and unsubmitted, your heart gets a little bit harder. Ask God to soften your heart. Ask him to lead you to repentance. 
But this doesn't just apply to unbelievers. It's also for those who profess to be God's people. Every time God's word comes to rebuke and correct us, we had better do something about it. You and I dare not ignore the challenges of God's word. We love the promises, but we can't ignore the challenges. Whether it's a challenge for us to forgive someone or to seek someone's forgiveness, whether it's a challenge to change our attitude to a particular brother or sister, or to turn away from some sin or some idol that's beginning to worm its way into our heart, taking God's place in our heart. Let's remember, every time we hear God's word, God has spoken. And we will respond one way or the other. Let's make sure we respond like Josiah, humbly, with a commitment to obey. Not like Jehoiakim, proudly refusing to obey. If Jehoiakim's response to God's word wasn't so evil, it would be funny. The silliness of thinking he can silence God's voice by cutting up a piece of parchment. It's just as silly as the American president, Thomas Jefferson, who took his Bible and carefully cut out the bits of the Bible he didn't like. As if that actually got rid of the bits he didn't like. They might not have been in his Bible anymore, but they hadn't gone away. They were still part of God's word. And Jefferson was still accountable for how he responded to them. Here, Jehoiakim tries to be a bit more thorough than Thomas Jefferson. He burns the scroll, and after burning it, he tries to silence those responsible for producing it just to make doubly sure that God's word will go away. But verse 26 tells us the Lord had hidden Jeremiah and Baruch, meaning they went into hiding and God made sure they weren't found. God intervenes to preserve those men because he's determined to preserve his word. For all of the king's efforts, God's word is ultimately indestructible. God has preserved his prophet Jeremiah. Verse 27 tells us, after the king burned the scroll containing the words that Baruch had written at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll and write on it all the words that were on the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, burned up. And while you're at it, God says, you can also send a new word to Jehoiakim. The only thing you have achieved by defying my word is to seal your own destruction. You sent the scroll up in smoke, but my word hasn't gone up in smoke. It will come true. Judgment will fall on you and your kingdom. And then finally we're told in verse 32, so Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to the scribe Baruch son of Neriah, and as Jeremiah dictated, Baruch wrote on it all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. 
I take that to mean the first scroll hadn't contained all of Jeremiah's sermons from the previous 23 years, but second time around, more of them are added. Maybe all of them. So the amazing thing is, if you have a Bible in your hand right now, you have in front of you the very same words Jehoiakim burnt in his brazier. Those words were not destroyed. God's word is indestructible. Throughout history, he has acted to preserve his word. No matter what king or emperor or Chinese dictator or Soviet leader sought to destroy his word. Many regimes have had a policy of burning books, particularly Bibles. Empty them out of people's houses, make a big mountain of them in the town square, and watch them all fry. But no amount of book burnings have been able to destroy God's word. That is not true of other books. The complete libraries of whole civilizations have been destroyed in the past. We know there was a massive library at Alexandria containing tens of thousands of scrolls. Nothing survived from that library. But this book is different. It's a book for every people and every nation. Today, the Bible is available in well over 3,000 languages. It's an indestructible book because it contains the inextinguishable Word of God. So let's have a new appreciation for this book that we hold in our hands or scroll through on our phone. It's a gracious gift from God. It's life-giving. And every time we read it or hear it read, we are hearing God speak. Let's commit ourselves to listen carefully and obey. And let's ask God to help us. We're joined together now in a song that reminds us of the power of the scriptures and of the gift that they are to us. As Paul wrote to Timothy, they are powerful in making us wise to salvation.